Currency Press is Australia's foremost publisher of the performing arts. We've been sharing Australian stories since 1971, and we've always believed in theatre that raises more questions than answers. That's why we're sitting down with some of the country's most respected playwrights and talking to them about their work. One play, 30 minutes, straight from the source. Hello, I'm Toby Leon, and this is Not In Print. Declan Green is a writer and theatre maker based in Melbourne. His plays include A Black Joy, Summertime in the Garden of Eden, Moth, and Little Mercy. His work has been produced at Malthouse Theatre, Melbourne Theatre Company, Sydney Theatre Company, the Sydney Opera House, and various backyards in suburban Melbourne. Awards include the Malcolm Robertson Prize, the R.E. Ross Trust Playwrights Development Award, an Augie Award, and Green Room Awards. The play we're here to talk about today, 8 Gigabytes of Hardcore Pornography, won the Max Afford Playwrights Award in 2012 and is preparing for its premiere production at Griffin Theatre in May 2014. And just a little note before we get started, this episode contains strong language and adult themes. They met online. She's a nurse in her 40s, brats for kids, trapped in a loop of catastrophic debt. He's in IT, miserably married and trapped in his own loop of nightly porn trawling. Both of them crave something else, but not necessarily each other. Eight gigabytes of hardcore pornography takes the plunge into the too-much-information age. Funny and fiercely written, it's a deceptively compassionate cringe comedy of midlife loneliness, hidden zip folders, and barely concealed desperation. Declan, welcome back to Not In Print. Tell me, what came first, the story or the porn? The genesis of the project was actually uh, this kind of obsession I had for maybe maybe like five years for collecting anonymous online confessions. There was this kind of um, series of websites I used to kind of haunt, and um, there were websites where people would just um, uh, could type in into this kind of text field a confession of any length, and um, it would be assigned a serial number. And then as a visitor to the website, it was this kind of endless interface where you could just press refresh and you'd get a handful of confessions up on the page. And some of them were, you know, just kind of um, short and kind of banal, but also kind of tragic things that would be kind of like, you know, I'm drowned my pet rat when I was five or and some of them were like I've given up which is just seemed kind of you know really unbelievably punishing and terrible and some were really long kind of really really long detailed confessions about uh, double lives people had lived or um, losing life savings and family homes to gambling and um, and I guess collectively to me they spoke of this really kind of like hidden closeted shame that we all carry around with us and so I'm um, the play kind of started, I guess, before, you know, the notion of pornography and how that would feed into into the thematic of it. This piece has taken a while to reach the Griffin stage. It won the Max Afford Playwrights Award in 2012, was shown at Playwriting Australia's National Play Festival in 2013, and it's obviously gone through further development in preparation for the season at Griffin. But during that span, what's the biggest change to the script? The play has taken a pretty long time to get on stage. It's kind of gone through a, a lot of different developments and readings over the last kind of... Uh, two years, probably longer actually. I actually wrote the first draft of it in 2011. But um, it's really kind of needed all of them. Like the mode that the play uh, kind of functions in, like the form of the thing is uh, is the idea of uh, confessional, like the idea that the theatre is this confessional space. And it's uh, two 
characters standing on stage uh, talking to the audience. And, um, and not kind of in the sense of, uh, you know, a direct address monologue where they're just kind of talking out into a void or whatever. They're really very responsive to what the audience kind of offer them and the audience's reactions to what they're saying. But because of that kind of uh, confessional aspect to it and because the characters are often saying things, or articulating their interior monologue in a way that's very, um, uh, can be quite abject and quite confronting... I found that um, the play, I ended up doing big rewrites after every single reading because particularly in the early readings, I think I, I felt that the general temperature in the room was that people would feel like the characters were just saying going way too far or kind of um, it would reach a point um, where people would kind of turn off or start feeling like it was uh, gratuitous or kind of yeah really wallowing in in kind of fluids and <laughs> kind of like really base sadistic emotions and would just switch off to the characters. And I think that's kind of a fine line that um, uh, I was kind of treading over the course of rewriting, trying to, I guess, be true to that um, to uh, that kind of sometimes fairly gross interior monologue and that idea of the confession, but also not wanting to yeah, uh, have the characters become so completely unrelatable that people just switch off and go like, well, these people are fucked in the head. That's not me. Or I, I don't know anybody like this and I'm certainly not like this. That's kind of what I wanted to try and avoid. For me, at the core of it all, you've managed to find a way to not only do that, but to leave people with a, a combination of self-loathing, longing and fear, which is a pretty potent mix. How do you see that manifesting in, in real life and why does it work on stage? I guess I feel like at the moment we live in a, a world, well, we live in a first world country where um, I guess part of the mechanism of capitalism is that we're kind of kept in a constant state of desire for things that we can't ever possibly have, that there should always be this kind of illusory world that we're part of, which is constantly just outside our fingertips, which is kind of an evolved version of that kind of like, you know, really pastel kind of Betty Crocker version of kind of pastel, yeah, you know, like 1950s suburbia, except now, you know, um, instead of hoop skirts and and a jukebox, we want like inner peace and holidays in, in Tuscany and a bleached arsehole. And I think that, um, that that gulf that we arrive at kind of at some point in all of our lives where we suddenly realise that, that we're not living the life that uh, we wanted to live or the life that we feel entitled to live, um, when that gulf kind of opens up in your life, it can, can be an incredibly um, punishing and, and difficult time. And I guess that's where that kind of self-loathing kind of comes from when you you start accusing yourself of <laughs> not having achieved that. And it certainly makes you feel like you're not deserving of love and at the same time you can't switch off that longing, which obviously builds a whole pile of fear that you're never going to be able to get what you want and you're stopping yourself from getting what you want, which is paralysis. Yeah, it's a weird thing, isn't it, where I think, you know, for a lot of people, I think for myself certainly, you, you kind of oscillate between feeling like life is so punishingly long and, <laughs> and unrelenting and never-ending and then this absolute cold fear that you're n- there's nowhere near enough time to achieve all the things that you want to achieve or that you think you should achieve. <laughs> It's a comedy. It's a comedy. Well, that's <laughs> what I was going to say, because it's funny too. It's uncomfortably funny, really. And both of your characters say to the audience, don't make fun of me. But you have, and I think the audience will too. I mean, I did. I laughed along anyway. It was a kind of complicity, I suppose. And I, I think the humour is uncomfortable because it's always 
coming with a chaser of pity, actually, but I want to hear what effects you think humour has on a narrative as jagged and murky and bruised as this one. I think humour in this play is incredibly important. Like, I think the play is first and foremost a comedy, like like most of the things I write. Yeah, like my principal goal with this is is to make the audience laugh because that's that's what material this bleak has to be wrapped in. Otherwise, it's uh, otherwise I'm kind of giving very little to the audience other than <laughs> kind of a, a very kind of bleak outlook on life. But your humour catches them off guard, and I think that's what I like about it. You, mm. It always comes when you're not expecting it, and it makes you feel quite uncomfortable that you're laughing at it in the first place. Yeah, well, it's supposed to be kind of like a sort of pitiless laughter, I guess, in the sense that I, I guess I kind of think about it in the same way as like obviously it's not in the same category of quality or something like Beckett but I, I think about it, that that being kind of an extension or the kind of humour that I'm interested in as a writer like Beckett or Pinter or um, Alfred E. Jelinek or someone like that people whose work is really all about like on a level laughing at the absurdity of the human condition and recognising that sometimes the world is so completely fucked that all you can do is laugh to in order to keep going what else are you gonna do yeah exactly why are the characters numbered rather than named they're numbered because they're anonymous i mean there's a bunch of different reasons that they're numbered but yeah the the main one for me is that they're anonymous for me it was important that the play operate in this space of anonymous confessional much like the website i was talking about earlier or alcoholics anonymous or um a church confessional or something like that so these two characters can feel the freedom to come and stand up in front of a group of people and divulge all their kind of yeah most embarrassing impulses in the telling of this story and escape uh judgment and they meet online but I wonder what you think that mode of interaction and communication brings to the story. They could have met in other ways. Why did you have them meet online? I think it was important to have them meet online because um, like within the story there was space for them to invent a fictive version of one another and a fictive version of themselves, which I think is kind of the space that the internet affords a lot of us. Spaces like Facebook and OkCupid and Grindr, they, these, uh, yeah, these kind of spaces of projection where it's this kind of slightly dangerous thing, I think, and it's something I certainly experienced through extensive use of Grindr. <laughs> and it was that, um, <laughs> that you, um, you sort of end up uh, projecting your ideal lover or companion or boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever behind these kind of avatars on the screen. You kind of um, confabulate and, and create this, the identity of the person you want behind the tiny amount of bundled information you're kind of offered. And, and at the same time, you're encouraged to kind of basically embellish yourself and try and sell the very best possible version of yourself up front, which means that you're inevitably disappointing yourself when you can't execute that <laughs> every moment of your life. And you're also disappointing the person who you've sold that, uh, that version to. And so in a weird way, I think that that kind of like um, online dating and networking interface kind of, it sort of exploits the same mechanism of fantasy and longing as I was kind of talking about, talking about before that kind of that illusory world that that is just beyond your fingertips and and um, that same gulf that exists there when you find that you can't touch it or, or kind of or attain it. And I think that consumer culture and porn both kind of exploit that kind of at the same time. You've said previously that the play came out of your own fear of ageing. Do you see aspects of yourself, your future self in these characters? Yeah, definitely, but I see lots of my current self in there as well. Like, <laughs> like it's if more than anything I've written before. Like, one of the, the hardest things about developing this play and doing workshops and doing... um. 
uh, and doing readings of it is that after public performances of this play, I just feel like I've got up in front of a group of people and spread my ass cheeks and showed them the inside of my butt or something like that. Like it just feels, I just feel publicly flayed and humiliated. And Why um, have you done this to yourself. Jake? Yeah, Why I mean that was really it. And I just can't even imagine what the fuck it's going to be like seeing it in in a theatre, like actually as a production. Maybe it'll actually, it'll actually be less um full on when it's actually kind of cloaked in a, in an actual production. But um, I guess I'm yet to see that. Let's go back to fantasy then and pretend they're not real. Let's talk about them as characters. Let's talk <laughs> sure. About the woman number one. What are the most important things we should know about her? I mean, like on a basic character level, she's in her forties. She's a nurse. She thinks that she's overweight. She thinks she's old and stupid. She thinks she's ugly. She, I mean, these are, and these are kind of one of the first things you hear about her when she steps out on stage. It's the two characters coming out and just articulating their kind of their self-loathing, basically. But I think, um, in terms of the play and what happens to her, one of the the kind of fatal things that happens is that she's not net literate. I kind of think about, like, she's somebody who doesn't really spend very much time on the internet, so then when she um, puts up a dating profile, she doesn't really kind of understand the kind of protocol and things like that, how you operate on the internet. I kind of think of her about as kind of like, um, you know, when your parents um, first get online on Facebook or something like that, and they add all your friends and like photos of theirs from three years ago that show how much they've been stalking them and put up weird misattributed quotes, you know, like, there must be the existence of angels in the universe, Albert Einstein, and, like, or kind of believe everything that's online. That Yeah, and I think that that's kind of what happens to her. She doesn't kind of know how to read social cues over the internet, and that's kind of the start of a lot of the um, stuff that happens with her over the course of the play. She's a shopaholic as well and everything's maxed out including her delusions she throws out her mail she deletes all of her voicemail messages ignores the notes tucked beneath her windshield wipers they're all from debt collection agencies and her impending financial doom has surely compounded her general feeling of being under threat but it's pretty intense she keeps her doors closed locked and bolted she has a very detailed plan about what she'll do if an intruder should enter her home She hides money beneath her pillow that she'll use to bribe them. And when they break in, she'll send a text to each of her children telling them so, a cue for them to hide under their beds. Everything, absolutely everything, is planned. And she takes comfort in this plan of defence, or as she calls it, of surrender. It's so simple, she says, so incredibly simple. I don't know how I didn't think of it before. Of course, there's a fatal flaw. You can't plan the unexpected, even if you're waiting for it to happen. Can you break down this false sense of control that she's built for herself and tell me what elements of delusion made it possible in the first place? Um, well, I don't really think of her as kind of like a deluded character in that sense. Um, I guess I, I try and try to avoid judging the characters I'm writing because otherwise then I feel like... Um, I don't like them, and it's really important for me to like the characters I'm writing. And I, I love these two characters very, very much. I have to because, <laughs> um, because yeah, like I said, there's so much of, um, of that I recognise of my own kind of flaws in them. Um, I, I guess I think of her as somebody, and I think she would think of herself as somebody who is really living in wartime and doing all she can just to stay afloat. And I don't think those behaviour patterns are particularly strange or idiosyncratic either i know plenty of friends who are in catastrophic amounts of debt just from you know taking out loan bank loans or putting holidays on their credit cards so they can go overseas or so they can 
um, buy things and um, in the here and now that they really want, like gaming systems or a home entertainment system or something like that, and who've got into the amount of debt where you just don't get out. You know, like the the kind of debt where you go to work every day and you make minus money from it because you you simply don't earn enough to get out of it, and it's um it's incredibly vicious and incredibly life crushing. There's this black hole at the center of your life, sucking everything out of it because everything becomes monetized in your life. Your life becomes about money. Your existence becomes enumerated as capital. And and I think that when that kind of happens, you end up having to strategize ways to <laughs> to make your way through that, or you get lost, or you get crushed under it. And also, um, with this character, it's kind of it's also not hysteria either the plan that she's putting together you learn later in the play obviously that there is actually a very real reason why she should be scared of the threat of physical violence mm. against her and her children mm. and um and uh which was kind of important to me that she wasn't this i think early on she's kind of um falsely set up in a deliberate way as kind of this uh, hysteric and then uh in a way that i think the audience will find familiar <laughs> And um, unfortunately, and but then um, you gradually realise that there's something much kind of darker sitting under her life. Mm. She's a nurse, as you said. It's hard work, she says. It doesn't pay much. It's destroying my back. And the doctors treat you like garbage. But at the end of the day, you're helping people, and I suppose that's what counts. I wonder how much it does count, though, because at one point when her back pain becomes so acute that she's almost incapacitated... The union nurse finds her slumped on the floor and she says, please don't send me home. And when the union nurse starts telling her about her rights, she tells her that she doesn't care about her rights. She cares about making money. Money that will allow her to continue this cycle of consumption and evasion and escapism. Here's a woman who cares for other people but can't take care of herself. And I wonder if we should look at the good work that she does any differently. Does it matter that a broken woman is helping other people to heal? I think that yeah, there's like there's definitely meant to be an an irony in that for sure. But that vocation is kind of hopefully meant to be a bit more than that, because otherwise I feel like it's sort of like tradition of um, naturalistic commercial playwriting, where it'll be like you know a heart doctor named Doctor Ursula Hart who cannot fall in love or something, <laughs> something like that. I mean, one of the reasons I picked I picked her as a nurse is because my mum's a nurse. Well, my mum used to be a nurse before she stopped, and um, I feel like for women of kind of my mum's age, growing up in the country as my mum did, there were kind of like two streams of employment for her. She could be a teacher or she could be a nurse. She chose nursing, and um, for that reason, that's kind of what that kind of signifies to me on a, on a level. But maybe that's just a personal thing. Maybe beyond that, it's just the sense that nurses work so incredibly hard it's like it's such a physically and emotionally taxing job and um then obviously they're not paid nearly enough for it i think that was something that was kind of reflected in my childhood a lot something i thought about because my mum worked so hard and i think i was kind of a bolshy little kid very early like there, there seemed something so grossly unfair about that in the same way that you know growing up catholic it seemed ridiculous to me that the Pope lived in the Vatican and on a pile of treasure and <laughs> and some preached about uh, uh, kind of equality and so many people in the world were starving. And I think we, maybe that's a digression, but also I think there's a very Catholic sensibility to the whole play as well. <laughs> actually, it really is. For the character, though, do you think that her job is a means to an end? Does she actually really care or is she kind of locked in a position where she just has to 
do what she can, and that's what she's done. I feel like she is doing. I, I feel like she's doing this to get by. And then adding her addiction mm. to that—that's a really interesting irony for me. Yeah, well, I think she's also as a character, she's a very capable person. She's the person who fixes things, and she's the person who makes, who strategizes, who makes plans, who. Um, so I feel like this is a job where she's fixing things constantly and fixing people constantly. And in a way, she's just constantly trying to dress the wound that is her life <laughs> with, with varying levels of success there, probably in the same way that her workplace would be as well. Mm. Well, let's talk about the man, number two. What are the most important things we should know about him? That he is the same as her in terms of um, his kind of uh, his notion of self his self-loathing, the fact that he too thinks that he is fat, thinks that he is stupid, thinks he's old and ugly. In a weird way, he is actually internet literate. He spends an incredible amount of time on the internet, on social dating websites, on Facebook, and also um, uh, an even larger amount of time just jerking off to porn. And um, and so that means he kind of... Uh, the, the established the power dynamic is established early in a way that's tilted his way, and that kind of has fairly disastrous consequences. Yeah, there's a real darkness in him actually. And early on in the piece, he sends out a lot of messages, and for a while, it seems like he'll get nothing back. Hi, he says. Hi, hi, hi. One after another, after another, they keep rolling out. Nothing comes back until suddenly there's a break in the stream and a dark part of his consciousness erupts. I want to stick my dick in your ass and choke you with it. Then, as if nothing happened, the stream rolls on. Hi. 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 (laughs) I know this is darkly funny, but I'm interested in unpacking it because as a porn addict, he's no doubt seen women being treated badly, fetishizing abuse is, is common. And in another revealing moment, when he tells the woman that he's never really felt like a man, a real man, he thinks he's too fat, too white, and he wishes that he was the sort of guy that could yell his desires at a woman and have her simply accept them. How do you think inadequacy and sadness can transform into aggression and obsession? I, I think, like, there's a kind of a clear relationship between the two and that I think they're, like, fairly cyclical. Like, he's kind of angry and obsessively because obsessive because he feels um, inadequate and sad and, and kind of vice versa. I think of those things that feed each other. But I think, um, I think his kind of relationship to porn kind of feeds into that as well. Like, in terms of his position in life, like, I think that... Uh, in the first world, like men and um, probably like white men especially, and then straight white men maybe even more so, they kind of like promised a lot at birth. And I think a lot of um, porn kind of continues the kind of the weird fantasia of that promise, like that I, I, in terms of the kind of women that should be accessible to them, which is kind of women who are like hairless and vacant and submissive and childlike and um and constantly turned on all the time and um and this is this is obviously speaking mass generalization because porn is heavily stratified there are a billion different subcategories then sub sub subcategories of porn we're talking about kind of the most uh, probably mainstream commercial kind of porn which i feel is what he accesses because i don't think he has much of an imagination um (laughs) Yeah, so I think um, in terms of... I think that's where that kind of frustration comes out of. But I actually don't think he's kind of like... I feel like that darkness is actually more of like 
um, what could read as darkness is actually more of like a childlike like kind of lashing out in frustration. I think it's like a really stunted emotional immaturity that I think a lot of men in his position actually have, where it's 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 more like chucking yeah chucking a little tantrum because you know they're they're watching this material where kind of fat gross hairy guys get these available women and they don't. So it's more of a whinge. <laughs> I think it is kind of more of a whinge. I think it's and I think kind of we're at a kind of a really interesting point in terms of um porn culture as well where kind of um yeah it's kind of like really shifting away from um very kind of heavily kind of um uh, industry based I mean some or something that's kind of not based in kind of like film production as much or that where there's kind of as much mediation between the performer and the person who's sitting at home with their dick in their hand in in that sense that like it, you know um online file sharing websites like Xtube and Pornhub and stuff like that have become really really major and um and it's it, you know it becomes about just kind of sharing videos of um you know of what is supposed to be kind of your average people at home just fucking or whatever but then like the kind of videos that actually do get shared or do kind of become viral through those kind of channels aren't you know they aren't uh chubby 40 somethings uh having missionary sex on their couch in their apartment it's um people who kind of still subscribe to that kind of ideal kind of taut bodied kind of ideal so in a way there's something even more kind of pervasive uh, operating there, which is about suggesting that this is actually what real life is, or this is actually <laughs> what real people should be. So I feel like he's kind of a subject of that kind of mentality, where um, again, the, the when the illusion is kind of being presented as as reality or as something very achievable, and then it's still completely out of his reach. The kind of gulf of yeah, kind of like shame and embarrassment and frustration that kind of opens up there. I know you said that you like them both, but. I would probably say that they're not like a ball. They both steal. They tell lies. I would say personally, this is again subjective delusional lies. They reek of desperation and lack willpower, backbones, or self-respect. Clearly, people's flaws and scars and imbalances make for compelling drama. But I'm still curious to know what it is, particularly, that you find so interesting about the muck and the mire and the disturbing and disconcerting aspects of humanity. Hmm. Well, I think they are those characters are definitely all of those things, and I agree those are attributes that we are encouraged to see as unlikable in people. But I would say that at a press, you would say you feel all of those things about yourself at some point, and so do I, and I think so do most people. My number one rule with this play was um, that the characters could never lie to the audience. They were never allowed to do that. They could try to lie to the audience, but ultimately they had to tell the truth every single step of the way. So in a sense, it's characters, it's almost a play with no subtext at all. It's it's two people standing on stage, telling a story, and along the way, honest, like completely honestly telling the story with very little <laughs> embellishment, articulating every kind of um, base, embarrassing, antisocial impulse that they have had along the way. It's It's the kind of storytelling that, we can't do. They're, so they're kind of living in this fantasy confessional space where they can really, yeah, t- t- literally tell everything. And yeah, that's really interesting to me. So I think I don't, yeah, I don't necessarily go for baseness as a kind of default. I think I just, as a writer, I'm curious about what's below the surface when you scratch it. And because of the way we live, <laughs> that's what's, that's the stuff that's often under there. Yeah. Last question. 
The play opens and closes with a crisscross of self-loathing, affirmations, proclamations, and desperation. Interestingly, this stream that appears on the page, like a Twitter feed, doesn't actually have any of the statements assigned to a particular character. They could be spoken by number one or number two, by both of them, maybe at the same time. They could even be a stream of collective hopes and desires and fears that aren't actually number one or number two saying them. They could be speaking for other people. I started to feel a little bit anxious when I was reading it because it's impossible to judge or to even imagine who those people are without catching your own reflection and realising mm-hmm. that in your weaker moments you might also be as desperate and sad as these people. And you have been, obviously. So I wonder, even though the mode of communication and interaction online allows us to connect ever more rapidly and with an ever greater number of people, does it really change anything about who we are? Well, those, um, the section you're talking about, which is, I think, the 12th scene of the play, yeah, it's, it's all just basically confessions. Um, it's uh, literally, I reckon about probably maybe like 70% or 80% of that are actual literal cut and pastes from, um, from anonymous online uh, websites and tried to put them in in kind of the most random fashion and not assign them to a character because I kind of wanted to try and have them exist in this space without judgment where I don't impose any hierarchy on them. I don't say that this thing is worse than this other thing or um, kind of, uh, I guess, uh, leave that as kind of an open question for the for the audience to put themselves inside. But it is kind of a moment of the play where it's supposed to grow far beyond these characters, beyond these two people, where the play is actually supposed to... Um, have them kind of channeling countless kind of voices in or countless anonymous voices. And I think some of them are like really funny and some of them are really appalling and some of them are both at the same time. But I think um, the scene is important and probably like my favorite part of the play because it's, I think it's really impossible, like you say, not to listen to it and think like, oh my God, that is what I've felt so many times in my life. And, yeah, yeah, I would challenge anyone to say they don't relate to a lot of the confessions in that list, even though I feel like that's a very private thing and that is probably something not a lot of people will be leaving the theatre going like, oh, my God, like he said I masturbated twice on September 11 and so did I. Isn't that incredible? Um, I think that in this kind of moment of this play and hopefully this play is kind of the the cumulative moment of an hour of uh, sitting inside this kind of um, micro-personal tragedy, I kind of hope that there'll be some kind of weird cathartic release for the audience, this moment where you actually get to sit there and go, these people are the same as me and I'm the same as every person in this room and that we're all kind of bruised and naked and pathetic (laughs) at the end of the day and that's actually fine because that's just what we are as human beings. That's just the human condition and it's all right. Thank you so much for coming in and talking. Thanks for having me. Thanks for such great questions. Thanks for listening to this episode of Not In Print. We hope you enjoyed hearing more about this great Australian play. You can find out more about who we are and view our full catalogue at currencypress.com.au. And if you have any comments or questions about this episode or any other episode, we'd love to hear from you. Just search for Currency Press on Facebook or Twitter and drop us a line. This episode was produced by Currency Press with the generous assistance of the Department of Performance Studies and the School of Letters, Art and Media at the University of Sydney.